our way through the first chapter and did some of the biographical information on James. We left off talking uh, about this idea of wisdom, and as we reflected on this, chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generally to all. We talked about how, you know, obviously this wisdom has a content, it, it's a way of a, a Christian wisdom in terms of understanding how to remain faithful in the face of persecution. But we also reflected that in the Old Testament, particularly in Proverbs, uh, wisdom is, is personified and wisdom and Jesus are one and the same. So as one you know, faces persecution and faces trials, what we need is Jesus himself and then the content, of the wisdom that he gives us uh, to remain faithful no matter what. So James encourages us to uh, view... Uh, trials um, as joy and these are specifically the trials that afflict us as Christians and come upon us because of our Christianity to receive these uh, trials as joy because this testing of your faith produces steadfastness steadfastness um, causes us to be perfect and complete lacking nothing okay, in other words to be mature Christians um, so anyway, that sort of sums up where we've been so far. Just a comment on how James weaves themes together. Um, you know, we discussed wisdom, and if uh, later on in his epistle, he talks about wisdom again, for example, in chapter 3, if you want to flip ahead there um, briefly, in chapter 3, uh, verse 13 and following, he also talks about wisdom, and again, we're going to see that this wisdom is transparent, and we see right behind it a reference to Jesus himself as wisdom. So in verse 13 of chapter 3, we read, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, spiritual, demonic. So there again, that wisdom that comes down from above, um, we think of Jesus coming down from above, incarnate in human flesh, wisdom incarnate, the Word made flesh, the Word and wisdom of God incarnate. Um, yet again, a, what seems to be a veiled reference to Christ as wisdom. And of course, that wisdom has a content. I mean, it's the same, we're, what we're talking about is the same distinction in saying that Jesus is the Word who was with God and was God. He is the Word made flesh. And then the content of that Word, of the revelation that is Jesus, would be the New Testament scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. So there's Word the person and Word the content or expression of the person. And the same would be true of wisdom. There's wisdom the person, and then there's wisdom the content and expression of the person. And so we see that reflected in James' meditations on wisdom, both in the first chapter and uh, here in the third particularly as he describes wisdom you know, in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Okay, so as you read that, you think, um, well, what on earth, who on earth alone is this wisdom? It would have to be Jesus to fulfill all these things. Um, I mean, no wisdom that I have personally had is ever, uh, you know, 
fit for those adjectives <laughs> and those descriptors, right? This is so similar, it reads similar to uh, the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. Doesn't it? Right? Yeah, so you're exactly right. The here is equated to uh, Spirit of God, which is, you know, you say is Christ, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're two persons of the same Trinity, you know, of the same God. So, yeah, we reflect on the closeness here of, of Jesus and the Spirit, or of wisdom in the Spirit. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, likewise, in this next section, we're going to see how James weaves these themes together. This next section is one that's caused a lot of ink to be spilled and uh, foreheads to be scratched. Uh, James' treatment of the rich. And one of the things that I think we'll see in this section and the subsequent sections is that for James, um, what he seems to have in mind is our Lord's words, you cannot serve both God and mammon. And so the rich for James seem to take on uh, those who serve mammon. And the rich become an icon for unbelievers for those whose treasure is earthly and not uh, those whose treasure is heavenly. Um, remember Jesus says, uh, store up for yourselves heavenly treasure. Um, so let's look at this section and see if that makes sense. Let the lowly brother, okay, now we've discussed a little bit how brother is argued by the scholars as brother a reference to pastor or to all Christians. At any regard, brother here is Christian. So let the lowly Christian, brother, boast in his exaltation. Um, the, uh, the lowly will be exalted and the proud will be brought low. That's a theme, for example, in the Magnificat. It's a theme throughout Scripture. Um, but this lowly brother boasting in his exaltation. This is the lowly Christian being exalted, what sort of exaltation is this? Does God give us gold thrones to sit on right here, right now? No, not exactly, or at least mine's gone missing. Maybe you have yours. Um, does Jesus uh, shower us with earthly wealth and treasures and honor right now? No. It's an exaltation that's a hidden exaltation, being credited as righteous in God's sight for the sake of Jesus' shed blood having the forgiveness of sins, having all of God's promises, having God's gifts and blessings and baptism and absolution and his supper. These are the ways that we are exalted. These are the ways that he's taken the lowly and lifted us up. So let the lowly brother, the lowly Christian, boast in his exaltation. Now, that's an exaltation that has been given to us by works of our own. No, solely by God's grace. So this is akin to what Paul says, that he won't boast in anything except Christ and him crucified. We won't boast in anything except God's gracious, undeserved, and hidden exaltation that he's given us, right? Okay, now here's the contrast, and the rich. Now notice what's missing. Brother, it's missing. Yeah, now, you know, you can argue, you can argue well, is it implied? Uh, well, why doesn't he say it? take a look at, at the end of this rich uh, one. The rich in his humiliation. So again, is this a sarcastic boasting? What's going on? Well, the next clause gets us more to the point because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. That's a picture in the Old Testament of eschatological end times judgment. You know, the sun rises, 
the Lord returns, there's judgment, um, the flower of the grass passes away. Um, verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. In other words, you might kind of paraphrase and say, what happens to all the earthly wealth and splendor and everything else we accumulate for ourselves? It's gone, right? Um, in the blink of an eye. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So as the grass is scorched and withered, is here today and gone tomorrow, same with the rich man, he's gone. Now I think it's probably the clearest way to think about this. Uh, so is the man who puts his faith in mammon rather than in Christ. Here today, gone tomorrow. Um, you also have in the backdrop here most likely uh, Jesus' parable of the sower. Because if you remember, um, as the sower uh, sows his seed, uh, some of that falls into uh, the soil and springs up, but when the sun comes, it withers and it dies because it has no root, Jesus says, right? So that sun takes the form of... Uh, you know, the tool of judgment. And what is that sun in Jesus, uh, in Jesus' parable? That sun is persecution. So when persecution arises, okay, when persecution arises, then um, the rich man falls away because he loves his riches instead of Christ. And that could well be what these Christians are facing, right? The, the distinct question of if you follow Christ, you're going to be scattered, you're going to lose house, home, wealth, income, all of that. So if you choose to serve God, this is what you'll have to endure, um, but count it all joy. If you choose to serve mammon, then you'll keep your uh, grass and flower, but know this, it'll wither and perish in a day. Now, how can it be that we might uh, assert that the sun represents at once Jesus and at once uh, persecution, challenge, or difficulty. Um, if we take a look at, uh, again, uh, verse 2, what James has already taught us. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Who is it that tests our faith? grows our faith, strengthens our faith. Jesus. Jesus himself. Yeah. So is it even possible that God allows uh, and brings about challenging things upon his people for the growth of their faith, for the creation of new faith? Well, absolutely. I mean, grab a Bible. <laughs> that seems to be the theme, right? Um, difficult times, uh, even at the hand of God, for the sake of testing and growing and strengthening faith. An example of this that uh, James himself will bring up is Abraham with Isaac. Remember? God uh, uh, asks that Abraham would sacrifice his son Isaac. There's God himself testing faith. Uh, we might even say implying a certain, uh, applying a certain uh, persecution viewed from, you know, understood in the right way um, that ends up testing uh, Abraham's faith, probably Isaac's too and ends up producing in Abraham uh, steadfastness 
and a certain perfection or completeness of his faith that he didn't have before. So how do you know if it's God or the devil that's testing you? Uh, <laughs> Luther says you don't. Really? Yeah, because it could be one and the same. Um, it doesn't much matter. And then the devil's God's devil. So if the devil's tempting you and testing you and allowing this to be, um, it's God's permitting that. Now, I should, I should make a sharp distinction, though, because this is a distinction James makes and will make soon, um, that God tempts no one. Because it's a temptation into sin. That's what tempting means. So God tempts no one. Because God wouldn't have you sin. But God may test you. God may test you. But he will not tempt you. Um, so uh, there's a testing. As we see in chapter 1 verse 2. Um, but we need to you know, bring along the idea that God tempts no one. So if the devil is. is you know, so if we face temptation to sin. Uh, we can say definitively that that's the devil and not God. But if we find a testing of our faith, is it God or the devil? Luther says it doesn't matter, and I think he's right. Um, if the devil tests your faith by virtue of the Ten Commandments, he's going to use whose word against you? God's. So is it the God or the, or the devil? Yes. Um, for example, maybe uh, the, the archetype of this, if you will, is... Um, Job. Uh, who comes and afflicts Job? The devil. But whose permission and authority does the devil have to do these things? God's. Exactly. So in testing, um, it doesn't much matter, nor can we often tell the difference. But the point is that if we have, uh, if, if we allow this uh, these trials of various kinds to produce in us steadfastness, to understand that it is God who, uh, as we read in Hebrews, for example, disciplines those whom he loves. Um, as a father disciplines his son, why does a father test and discipline his son? To make his son fail? No. To make his son grow and mature and be strengthened. So God would test us in the same way to grow us, strengthen us, and mature us. Does that sort of make sense of this? <clears throat> yes. I have a question on the, on the um, thing. So it's, and the rich in his humiliation, so the rich boast in their humiliation? Yeah, that's, that the, that's the question. Is that a sarcastic usage of boasting? Because look at how it ends. I mean, this would s seem to indicate that it is. Um, that what is the fate of the rich man? At the end of this uh, little section, the flower fa uh, falls, its beauty perishes, so also with, will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This doesn't seem to be much boasting. It seems to be a sarcastic use of boasting. Um, now, like I said, there's a lot of ink spilled because people have tried to <coughs> see this as a contrast between uh, rich brothers and poor brothers. So you've got a lowly or poor Christian let him boast in his exaltation. The meaning would be essentially the same. And then you try to say here, and the rich Christian in his humiliation. Well, what humiliation? That everything he has, that all his status will fade and ultimately be taken away. Um, yeah, fine, but that just doesn't, I, I mean, it's okay. And I, I think you can do that without breaking the rule of faith or falling into a false doctrine. 
But that interpretation gets really stretched with the next uh, verse, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. I mean, this is talking about the rich. So the, the judgment, the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the rich Christian. Yeah, unless it's just his possessions, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I think that that interpretation is stretching. And, and why also, you know, if you let James interpret James, like you should do with all literature, right, is let the piece interpret itself. Um, we have to look elsewhere to see how James, uh, how he treats the rich. Now look at, uh, go ahead to uh, chapter 2, and you'll get, a, you'll get a sense of this. Um, Well, let's just, let's just read, read through the section very quickly with little comment. My brothers, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, or you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom? That would be uh, akin to um, the, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Okay. Um, <clears throat> has not God chosen those who are poor in the world, the lowly brother, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. That's the exaltation which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Now look at his blanket treatment of the rich. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? In other words, aren't the rich the ones that persecute you, persecute the church? Now, what is James doing? Obviously, he's aware that uh, there are Christians that have some means. Um, for example, Jesus himself owned a house. His disciples had means. Kind of this idea that we get that they were this ragtag bunch of itinerant hippie homeless people. It's just dead wrong. Um, they had means. And they also, as well as the early church, had uh, a number of women in particular that are mentioned in the scriptures as, as supporting them. Wealthy women supporting uh, the church, uh, the apostles, and perhaps even Jesus himself and his ministry. Um, so there's nothing wrong with having wealth per se, and Christians can be wealthy. Um, even the commandments themselves allow for this. The seventh commandment says, thou shalt not steal. Well, that assumes that we would each have our own property, right? So while we can talk about the wider sense in which a Christian ought to view wealth and be a steward of that wealth that God has given him, look here in James how James uses it. James isn't interested in such a broad and even-handed discussion. James is interested in using the rich and poor in an iconic way, isn't he? So that the rich become the icon of unbelievers. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? In other words, they're not the ones who insult God. Do they not serve mammon instead of God, right? So look at what, it, what James does. Even though what he envisions is, uh, look, they're in the assembly, they're at church. That's verse 2. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, I mean, you know, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, even though he's picturing two people coming into church, which very likely would happen, a rich man and a poor man, by the end of this section, he's using the designation of the rich man or, or the rich in, a way, in an iconic way to denote unbelievers, to denote those who uh, blaspheme God's name and serve mammon instead of the Lord. Does that make sense? So all of this is trying to understand in James' mind, in the author's mind, and in his piece of literature, how rich and poor man, how those things are distinguished. Now, if we said earlier that, let's just compare what he says, um, let the lowly brother, verse 9 of chapter 1, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, that would coincide with verse 5 of chapter 2. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? There's the exaltation that they would glory in. Now, back to chapter 1. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, etc., etc., right? Um, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Compare that with verse 6 of chapter 2. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name in which you are called? So you see what James, James seems to he be doing. He makes such extreme Doesn't comparisons he? that He's great. really aren't, but they're not really, it's not real. I well, mean, it's almost like, yeah, it could be, but it doesn't necessarily that way. Yes, I, I would agree with you that it's not necessarily that way. Um, because like we said, there are rich who are faithful. Yeah. Right. But again, we want to, it's the iconic usage of the phrase rich. So that rich denotes one who serves mammon, not God. Um, it's the rich who yeah. made idols out of their wealth. Yes, exactly right. That's yeah, that's who it is. So, so James is using the expression in an iconic way. Um, I'm trying to think of another example, and I'm struggling to think of another usage in Scripture. The rich and the poor is is constantly one. I mean, he automatically makes all poor people really great. <laughs> all rich people yeah. really bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just seems so extreme. Yeah, the poor in his mind, we spend a lot of time on the rich, the poor in his mind are those who are, um, you might say poor in spirit. As Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, remember, at the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. But the poor are also those, and, I, and here's where I think James is really driving at. If you serve God and not mammon, you may have a lot of money, but you serve God with that money. That money's not your money. So in essence, you're poor. You know, and I think that that's what he's really getting at is the Christian man or woman who has means still views themselves as stewards, as owning nothing, as God owning everything, views themselves as poor, views themselves as servants, slaves, um, stewards of that which is not theirs. Does that help to make sense of it? So maybe if we understand uh, the deeper way he's talking about the poor, then we can understand the deeper way he's talking about the rich. We didn't know what that iconic meant. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, like, like icon yeah, like iconic is, uh, you know, Mary, Mary in some sense for John becomes iconic of the church. Okay. That's why in the Revelation, John sees and writes 
that the one who gives birth to the child, which would be Mary, um, who has, I think it's 12 stars or a crown of 12 stars around her head and is depicted, she becomes iconic of the church. Um, so you have these, you have, uh, um, these iconic usages of people, of places, of themes throughout the scriptures where the person or entity itself comes to represent much more. Yeah. Um, uh, let me think of another example. Revelation is just full of these. Um, who is the, uh, ah, who is the false prophet in uh, Revelation? It's, uh, Balaam, Balaam, Balaam is brought up. He he becomes though he's a historical person and he's a false prophet. Remember, and uh, you know, he's asked to curse Israel and he won't do it. He curses Israel and he won't do it. And then he's going to do it. And then his donkey talks to him. And then he ends up uh, convincing. Um, I think it's the king to the pagan king to have uh, is the Israel men intermarry with his pagan women. And that brings about the downfall. So you have uh, adultery, which is idolatry, which is breaking God's word, which is a false prophet, which is collecting pay, which is becomes the icon of false teachers, leading Israel for the sake of gain into adultery, which is idolatry, uh, and destroying God's word. And so uh, Balaam gets picked up in Revelation as, in, as an icon of false. A, a false teachers. Does it, does that kind of make sense of icon? I'm sorry. I, um, what I'm saying is that the person who is poor takes pride in being rich in salvation. Yes. Okay. And the person who is rich, now I'm thinking of believers, takes pride in I really don't have anything. It's all God's, and I'm just blessed for some reason. But I'm taking pride in that I really don't own anything, really. Yes, yes, and I—that's a—that's a possible reading of this that some hold. The and I think that 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 makes a lot of sense. I think the challenge to that particular take on it is, um, in the first place, what follows is only judgment upon the rich man, and there's never any judgment upon the poor. And again, this. Uh, the idea of the flower of the grass fading and uh, the scorching heat withering the grass, the flower falls, the beauty perishes. This is uh, over and over in the Old Testament. Again, uh, I would say iconic of God of the final judgment. It's a picture. It's an icon. You see this picture of the sun rising and the grass wilting and the flowers popping off and fading and you see that this all happens in the course of a day and as you have that image that picture in your mind that the words have created you realize that behind that is the reality of God's judgment and the reality of of the judgment of human beings so that w by iconic it's in the same way you look at an you would look at an icon right uh, just a painting and as you look at that icon, there's more to it than meets the eye. There's more being communicated. It's not just, you know, in, in later Western art, we kind of draw things exactly as they are. And there's no story, there's no narrative to it. But one of the fascinating things about visual art, and particularly that that's older, is you, is you look at it and it's, you go, 
well, what a terrible drawing. All the proportions are wrong, and it doesn't look anything like a photograph, and it's not an exact representation. This must be a poor artist. Wrong! You missed it. You're illiterate, and you don't speak the language that that artist is speaking. The proportions are wrong, and things are off and askew and different because something is being emphasized, because something is being stated, because it's being brought forward. Um, so that it tells a story more than just a regular photograph would do. It's how an icon works. Yeah. Well, it's like the icon on the smartphone. They they don't represent. They're like you know drawn sometimes right. but it's an icon. What's really behind it? The whole application. Yes, exactly, exactly. So that that symbol, that picture becomes representative of the whole deeper reality. You know our uh, our. Uh, nativity scene is like this because if you look at the nativity scene okay uh, you have you have Mary and Joseph there that's scriptural you have uh, Jesus there that's scriptural you often have an a-frame uh, barn that they're in for lack of a better word is that scriptural you never actually find that there an a-frame wooden barn would not be in all likelihood anywhere near first century uh, so why is it there because we rejoice in historical inaccuracy no because we like to deceive people no why because artists began the church the church is what it read artists began to depict it with the a-frame church type structure so that you're seeing something so that you're having something more than meets the eye communicated to you now what else is there all growing up, all growing up. Yeah, the shepherds are there. We know, that the, we know that the shepherds came. The wise men, we know from Scripture they're not there. Oh, we're so ignorant. We're so stupid to put it there. No, we're not. How else do you communicate that the wise men are there, that the Greeks are there, that this birth of the Savior is for Jews and Gentiles? How do you do that iconically, visually? You see, you put them there so it's all in one. Um, it mentions sheep. Uh, well, well, it mentions shepherds being there. It never mentions sheep. So the assumption is that the sheep come with the shepherds. Okay, fine. Um, but the sheep are always there because who is the one laying in the manger? The good He's the good shepherd. That's one take, and that's helpful. That's probably more why the shepherds are there, because he's the good shepherd, the shepherd. But now when the sheep are there, that is pointing to him as the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Those are the sheep in Bethlehem that are being raised there, not just because Bethlehem was you know, the uh, textile uh, and wool-producing province. No, those sheep are produced there because those are the sheep that will be slaughtered at the temple. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem amongst the sheep that will be slaughtered for the atoning sacrifices. He is the Lamb of God, so he's there. So that's kept in. Um, now, what else is, is inaccurate? The scriptures never say that the ox and the donkey are there. Have you ever wondered why the ox and the donkey are there? Why? In some of the visual icons, the ox and the donkey are like, are like arching over the shoulder of, uh, of Mary and Joseph and are looking down like, huh? you know, at the Savior. Why? Um, well, someone got carried away. And, you know, no, no. Okay, because Isaiah, Isaiah says, and this is judgment on the people of Israel, that the ox and the donkey know their master, but my people do not. So the ox and the donkey belong there because they know who this is and the people do not. It's a reference to Isaiah. You see, so in this simple thing that every once in a while you get this like, 
you know, you get this brilliant pastor who's like, oh, the historical inaccuracies of the... Ah, you don't get it. You don't get art. You don't get communication. You don't get visual representation. You don't get icon, right? Um, so I, I use that real long illustration to demonstrate that um, there are certain things that the scriptures themselves utilize and change into icons. Um, they take on a meaning unto their own. Uh, gosh, uh, uh, Egypt and Pharaoh are like this. Egypt comes to represent any kind of bondage, bondage to sin. Pharaoh um, comes to represent the oppression of sin, the oppression of Satan, of his satanic powers. Um, even for Paul then, the trip through the Red Sea is a baptism. That's what it is. Because it's, it's God releasing them from Egypt, releasing them from Pharaoh and from slavery. And so baptism for us does the same thing. Releases you from the land of the dead, from slavery to hell's Pharaoh. Uh, crushes hell's Pharaoh under the powers of the water of baptism. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So these things have an iconic building nature to them. And uh, that's true for the grass of the, of the field here that's uh, mentioned. Now, one other, uh, one other thing to bring out, and that's, uh, again, look at his treatment of the rich. Um, if you look uh, forward into verse, or chapter 5, and this is maybe the harshest yet treatment of the rich, but you've got to get this so you get thematically how he's thinking about the rich. Verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1, I mean. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Okay, so there's his you know, final take on, on the rich. And you'll notice that the rich there fall under the judgment of the last day. And that's identical to what we saw in uh, chapter 1, verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Sounds like he's a little bitter. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little? Well, he's he's bitter against, against unbelievers, against those who reject Christ and choose to serve mammon instead of God. And he's warning. Remember, this is the chief temptation his people are up against. Right? His people are up against apostasy, forsaking Jesus for the sake of temporal comfort and gain. In other words, their temptation is to serve mammon instead of God. And so he is saying, look, you want to serve mammon, you want to be rich, this is what you get. So pastorally he's saying, don't do that. Right? Remain in the faith. I hope he he really realizes that the poor could have as many idols as the rich. It's just that a rich man really falls into that more easily. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and, and here again, I think, I think here's the key. I think what he is envisioning is, uh, you know, the rich as the unbeliever who has nothing but the earthly riches. And the poor as the believer who, whether he has earthly riches or not, considers himself to be poor for the sake of Christ, a servant and a slave, a steward, realizes that none of these things he has belong to him. So that even a rich man that is a man of means can be a lowly or poor man in, in James' sight. While, whereas even a poor man, a man who has no means, but who honors earthly wealth and makes that his God, he would be categorized by James as a rich man. A rich man, one who buys and sells and sees his whole life in terms of buying and selling. All right, I see lots of hands. Yeah. But, but I, I take this that uh, a rich man, uh, and we're all pretty well, wealthy in yes. this country compared to the world. Yes. We should be jettisoning our baggage because the message here is uh, it, it's going to be a temptation to us. It, it's going to be. What's the uh, I mean, did Jesus teach that the camel going through the eye of a needle for a rich man to get into heaven? He tells a rich young ruler, sell is it to sell everything and follow me? Yeah. So it's like it's it's like a plane coming in and dumping all of its fuel before it lands. Get because it's gonna, is, is that the right application here? To to some degree, of course, uh, Jesus isn't forbidding though us to have uh, private property and have things that are ours. Um, but they could become an idol. They could be, and if they do, you ought to get rid of them. You know the story of the rich young ruler is he comes to Jesus and says, uh, what commandments must I keep? Jesus lists them. He says, check, check, done it all. It's kind of a problem, isn't it? <laughs> so what, is, what does Jesus do? Well, he's a rich man. So Jesus hones in on what his one idol is. He says, look, you've got to put aside this idol. But what if that man wasn't rich? What if that man was a womanizer? Jesus would have said, all you have to do to follow me is be celibate and chaste and Right, Jesus, in other words, puts his finger right on this man's idol. And he can do that to any man with any idol. And that man goes away sorrowful because he had much wealth. Um, but then the discussion that follows with Jesus and his, uh, his apostles, he talks about, you know, the eye, it's, it's easier for a rich man or for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for the rich man to enter heaven. And what do the disciples say? Who then can be saved? Yeah. Because it's not, about, it's not about the rich. They recognize that, look, look, the only reason why they're talking about riches and wealth and anything is because this man happened to be rich. They could just as easily be talking about any one of the other commandments. And the disciples are, are, get it. And that's why they say, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. In other words, it has to be by grace. It can't be by way of the law. So the same, is, the same then is true as how we look at money. I, it's a misinterpretation of that passage. It's a misunderstanding of it to think that Jesus is there in commanding us all to give away everything we have. Right? Otherwise, what Christian has ever done that? What Christian has ever uh, stripped himself absolutely naked and gave away every last thing he has to other people? Jesus on the cross. Because even his clothing is used to clothe others, right? His garments are divided and his outer cloak uh, is cast lots for. That's it. Jesus is the only one who sells everything he has. Uh, for the, otherwise, so he, is the, he does what the rich young ruler cannot do. And he does what we cannot do. And even he goes beyond what we are commanded to do. Um, because what you see 
even in the apostolic ages, they keep personal property. They keep, I mean, Paul, I think, leaves his jacket in uh, <coughs> Troy, right? He wants it back. Writes that at the end of one of his letters. Um, so that's okay. Uh, so the idea, though, is that if these things become idolatrous to us, then we've got a problem. We need to repent. We need to set about making amends in our life. Um, so, again, just, just to clarify, I think the lowly brother can be one who is, the, the lowly Christian can be one who is uh, a man of means or no means. But it has to do with his, with his relationship to God. He serves God and not man. A rich brother could potentially be someone without means or with means, but who views those means as his God. He serves mammon and not the Lord. Um, now again, in these, uh, again, uh, this comes from comparing and contrasting these three sections in James, trying to come up with the best possible understanding of what the author himself is getting at, right? So when it's an icon, it, is it the lowly is believer, the rich is unbeliever, or the lowly is believer, the rich is unbeliever because of his love of man, or something else? Say that, it's, okay, say that again, I'm sorry, you lost me. Is icon, the lowly is the believer? Yes. And the rich is the unbeliever? Yes. Yes. Both and both and for James, he sees them as the same. the same. If you don't love God, it's because again he's going off what Jesus says: right. either you will serve God or Mammon. Right. So if you don't serve God, guess who you're serving? Like it or not? Right. Yeah. Well, because in the chapter two, then it's a, the rich man comes in and sits down. Yeah. So were they showing unbelievers first? That's the question. Uh, now, certainly at this time in the church, unbelievers would be invited to the service of the word, even as they were uh, in Israel with the temple. Um, one could not be a, one, one could be not a Christian and still come for what we would call the service of the word, although it looked a little bit different. Um, you, you might remember in church history, this actually develops into a formal uh, way of doing church. So that the, I think there's some brilliance to this, some genius to this, because they lived in a culture much more like ours where the people around us are by and large not Christian or nominally Christian in our case. But what they would do is, you know how we have the service of the word and the service of the sacrament. And, uh, you know, like around the time of offering, the offering, that's where the two services and the pastor says, please rise for the service of the sacrament. Right? Well, we just went through the service of the word. So, what this, where this division comes from in the history of the early church is the service of the word everyone was invited to. It was a public service. So this was your time to invite unbelievers, you know, Christians who belong to the uh, monophysite heretical church down the street, whatever. Bring them all, right? They all hear the word. The word does its work. It's good. The end of that service... Uh, the pastor and or elders would stand up and all, dismiss all who were not baptized, all who were not in communicant fellowship of that church. Half the church leaves. Only those who were baptized and in communicant fellowship would then partake of the service of the sacrament. So it's, it's quite possible that that's why the rich man is there. He's just curious. 
Um, maybe he even has some uh, evil intent in being there. Who knows? James seems to hint toward that. Are not they those who turn you into the courts, etc.? I mean, this is a time of persecution. Remember James 1.1? That's precisely what people would do. Even Paul did that. Remember? He went around, found out who the Christians were, hauled them off, had them arrested. So this is going on. Um, so we need not necessarily see in the rich man a believer, even in that first part of chapter 2. Why isn't it carrying the icon thing? Were they actually showing favor because the person was rich or because they were unbeliever? Uh, because, because they were rich and they sought to profit. So the, pa- the pastor himself or the Christian himself who's showing partiality and preferential treatment to the rich is himself in that moment serving mammon. And that's what James, in that section, that's really what James is after. Is James is after uh, the Christian, or maybe even specifically the pastor, showing partiality to the rich man, he is actually serving mammon, not God. I think that this is really the only uh, reasonable explanation to James' uh, just white and black treatment of rich and poor. Now, we already mentioned this. Um, who is the only uh, man who has uh, sold everything he has, given everything he has, even the very clothing on his back for the kingdom of God? That being Christ. So Christ himself becomes the lowly man. Um, the man who is uh, uh, lowly of heart, as he describes himself, um, but a man who, um, well, I think L- the, uh, Luther's hymns describe this very well, but so did the New Testament scriptures where it talks about Jesus humbling himself um, and Jesus being uh, in a state of humility. Because here we're talking about uh, the Prince of Heaven. I mean, here we're talking about the second person of the Trinity. We're talking about um, the Son of God Almighty in glory and splendor who, uh, I mean, if he snaps his fingers, he has a legion of angels doing whatever he wants to do. And here he humbles himself, empties himself uh, to be born of a virgin, to be born in a stable, to be laid not in a golden throne, but in a manger, uh, to have no one in the world notice but the poor, uh, the shepherds, um, and then he suffers himself, all the abuse he suffers himself to go through as he empties himself out for humanity, as he finally <clears throat> takes that ultimate state of humility on the cross and pours out everything, uh, emptying himself. He becomes the lowly man, the poor man. And we're going to see James himself uh, seem to reflect on that. Um, let see if I can find it. Oh yeah, it's it's in chapter five. He's got this great statement. Uh, so he talks about um, well, you got to tie them all together. I'm sorry, you know, if you if it's if you look if you look at what we've talked about in chapter one, then you go to chapter two that it's the rich who are persecuting the poor man, and then you go into chapter five, and he is chapter five verse one and following, and he's. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And then if you drop down to verse 4, it's how they've oppressed the poor. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, 
which you kept back by fraud are crying against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, it's their persecution of the poor. You have lived on earth in luxury and in, in indulgence. You have fattened your hearts on the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Who is this righteous person? Who is this uh, person that they have condemned and murdered by oppressing the poor? Christ. So it's not unlike when Jesus uh, uh, reveals himself to Paul. Remember he says, why are you persecuting my church? No. Why are you persecuting my Christians? No. Why are you persecuting me? Me. And so here in in, uh, mistreating the poor, James' accusation is that they have condemned and murdered the righteous person, the righteous person, Christ himself. They have persecuted Christ. And just as Christ did not resist on the cross, he still does not resist, but suffers himself to uh, be condemned and murdered by the wicked. And that in turn becomes their condemnation. That in turn, you know, and that's coming full circle Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Okay, so not exactly uh, uplifting, but um, you know, I think I think uh, certainly a faithful preaching of the law, a faithful preaching of eschatolo- eschatological theology, and a broadening of our thinking in a way for us to look at uh, the poor man as being Christ. The poor as being Christians, poor in spirit, but even if we have earthly means, we consider ourselves to be poor. We use those means in service to God. Um, the rich as those not needing God. The rich as those being like the rich young ruler who walks away. The rich as being those who serve mammon and not God, as being unbelievers and as having judgment upon them. Okay. Well, are we ready to get out of this section? (laughs) All right. So, verse 12. We have a beatitude, don't we? Reminiscent again of the way that Jesus speaks. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial or under testing. It's the same trial that was spoken of Uh, Chapter 1, verse 12. Yeah, sorry, we're all the way back at the beginning. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Again, look back at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various, uh, or trials of various kinds. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Okay, so blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. We ought to think first and foremost about Christ. As Pilate says, Echi homo, behold the man, right? And Jesus is crucified because he is faithful, he is steadfast, and he remains steadfast and faithful even under the very worst of trials and testing. <clears throat> so he is the faithful, the scriptures say elsewhere. All right, but likewise, in Christ, we are all called to this faithfulness. And we are all uh, given this blessing. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Um, crown is Stephanos, uh, uh, Stephan, where we get the name Stephan. So if you know a Stephan or a Steve or a Stephen, uh, it comes from crown. And uh, biblically, uh, and you have to think again about the, the history, the chronology of this, uh, the martyr Stephen um, that we read about in Acts, uh, that was a big deal that he was martyred. Uh, remember St. Paul's there holding the jackets as he's martyred. Um, that becomes just uh, such a poignant thing in the minds of Christians. Um, his name is Stephan, his name is Crown, and you go, oh gosh, what a coincidence. I mean, what an incredible coincidence that his name is Stephan. And, um, he, he, his name is Crown, and by being faithful unto death, he receives the crown of life. So as we reflect on James writing these words, I mean, as you re read in Greek, Stephanos of life, um, you can't help but think of the martyr Stephan, he, who was just killed, and that's so fresh in their minds. Um, so God is promised to those, which God has promised to those who love him. And love him here is synonymous. I mean, it's, it's really identical with those who believe in him, right? In the same way that, the, that John, for example, I mean, in his gospel, yes, but maybe especially in his epistles, uh, love for John means the same as belief. You know, when we love God, it's the same as believing in God, trusting in God. Um, as, as Luther explains the first commandment, we fear, love, and trust in God above all things. But anyway, this blessing, uh, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will rece receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love or believe in him. All right, now here's what we were reflecting on at the beginning of class. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, right? So God isn't about tempting us to sin, uh, but God may t at the same time test our faith. Uh, and, and that's that we see uh, many places in the scripture. Now he goes on to describe temptation and what he means, not a testing, but actual temptation. And here in verse 14 he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay? So it's as if you have uh, temptation and then you have a luring and enticement by the man's desire. Okay? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived. Notice the sexual language. When it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's interesting. Desire isn't considered sin? Well, it, it can be. And in, and in this case, I would say it is. He just means to say that desire matures into an actual sin. Yeah, you might make the distinction here between original sin and actual sin. That original sin is how we would define that desire in us to do the evil thing. And then actual uh, sin is when that desire within us has conceived with a given temptation, right? And produced an actual sin, which produces death. Yeah, so that, that might be the best distinction to use here.
Well, the way you described motive, yeah, I could see that being the same. Um, this desire is a, um, it's the same concept theologically of what we call concupiscence. Um, in concupiscence, if you dissect that word, uh, con and cupid, that's the, that's the abbreviation of cupid. So concupiscence is, is we have with us, con with us, this desire, this cupid, this lust, this love. Uh, for the wrong thing, for the yeah, evil. Motive came from philosophy, didn't it? I, didn't, I don't know. Separate the intellect from motive. The motive is the desire, and the intellect is the thoughts. I don't know. You'd have to school me on those categories. Yeah, I, I, do, I don't know uh, the intersection between philosophy and these concepts. But formally in theology, there's very little talk of uh, motive or motivation. Yeah, I think that's um, but it's much more concupiscence, which is which is concupiscence is a bondage of the will, to use Luther's term, and it means that your will lives under the illusion of being free, but your will says, look, I can do X, I can do Y, I can do Z, but here's how the bondage works: whether you do X, Y, or Z, it's all sin. So great, you had a choice to do sin A, B, or C. That, is that any choice at all? No, uh, that's Luther's point. Is, is your will is in bondage to sin. That's what cupiscence is. So uh, it's also this, that you desire what you desire before you desire it, whether you want to desire it or not. That I find evil within me, whether I like it or not. And, and that evil desire has sprung up within me the same way a thought springs up within me. It's just there, right? It's just there. Now, um, in terms of sanctification, we would say you need to stop that thought right there. You need to condemn it and bring your mind in subjection to Christ and you need to stop that desire from conceiving and bringing forth actual sin. And that's where I think um, maybe our best chance at sanctification lies is in nipping that desire in the bud as soon as it pops up. Um, but Because if that desire is allowed to continue then it's going to conceive with, uh, yeah, conceive and uh, give birth to sin, and sin ultimately brings forth, of course, death. But my Bible says evil desire. I mean, desire by itself isn't necessarily bad. That's uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, you can define that humanly, but yeah. theologically, um, this is talking in context. Um, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. It's really talking about a, a narrow use of the term desire, a theological use of the term desire. Um, that which we find ourselves that desires sin. I mean, haven't you ever felt it strange? I mean, of all the things you could do, you desire to do the sinful thing. You know, of all the things I could do today, I desire to go on a shopping binge, or I desire to um, sit behind my computer and do nothing or I desire to be lazy or I desire why don't I desire to be good why don't I desire to go volunteer why don't I desire to write a check to some charity why don't I desire these things the way I desire evil you know um, so that's th that's the narrower definition of desire we're talking about but then you have to bring your mind into the mind of Christ yes exactly yeah 
Yeah, so when that desire springs up within you, you want to recognize it, stop it, put it to death, and move yourself uh, away from that so that your desire can't conceive and produce actual sin. And that, yeah, yeah. And some theologians talk about if you, uh, they talk about habitus and the idea that if you continually indulge that desire over and over and over, that, that desire gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Whereas if you continue to fight that desire, that desire will diminish over time, may not disappear, but it may diminish over time. But you can't do it by yourself. Well, of course, all of this, all of this, uh, all of this uh, presupposes that the person is a Christian, that God has made the person <coughs> a, a new man. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you're in the realm of psychology and self-help and all of that, and you know that has some benefit, but ultimately, spiritually, it's. Yeah, exactly. Okay. This. So this calling is to spiritual warfare, right? That's the yeah, that we're talking about. Yeah, we're yeah. Habits to weaken and nip desire in the bud and use God's word, and, and that's why we dwell on God's word and mm -hmm. to do that warfare. Mm -hmm. And at first to recognize the desire within us. This is a sinful desire because I think I think we uh, that's maybe the first and most difficult distinction. Is this what I want, or is this what the old man within me wants? That's a difficult thing, but sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's not, you know, <laughs> go rob that bank. Okay, old man, no thing uh, today. Um, but you know, uh, sometimes it's much more confusing than that. You know, sometimes it's much harder than that. Yeah, but that uh, that becomes, you know, you want to you want to nip that desire in the bud. But that desire is going to be with us until we die. I mean, that's ultimately why Paul says, "Who will save me from this body of death?" Because. Uh, that flesh within me, that old man within me, constantly desires to do the wrong thing, whatever that may be, or constantly desires to uh, produce and believe and trust in his own righteousness. You know, I mean, it's it's equally, if not more, the old Adam in me that uh, tries to hold up my resume of good deeds to God, or tries to compare my good deeds against the misdeeds of someone else, and lo and behold, I come out favorably. You know, um, that's the old Adam. That's that's how the old Adam's very religious. After your sermon on Sunday, I talked to three people who desired to go out and eat donuts. Yeah, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that desire. Yeah, I mean, don't be enslaved by anything, you know. But anyway, yeah. Well, um, do I see any other questions or comments? Yes, very. Question: uh, Is there a difference between having a desire and thinking something? I don't know, maybe. It's the action, right? Is well Christ said if you think it, you you know, if you lust in your heart you have committed adultery. Yeah, yeah. If and you hate someone, you've killed them. Mm -hmm. But where does it become move from desire to thinking it? I think they're at that level they're one and the same. Because yeah. if you I mean if you're thinking, uh, like if you look at that if you look at the woman with lust in your eye, it's coming to you in a thought. Thought. That thought's identical to a desire. I mean, and that that desire may not be a desire to act, but it's a desire for that which is not yours. So you've done, you've, you've yeah, you've already said. That's what, that's why Christ, uh, his Sermon on the Mount, cuts so deeply, because it cuts past the external self righteousness we built up for ourselves. Now, I've never committed adultery. I've never broken the sixth commandment. And then Christ says, yeah, well, if you've done this thing that virtually every human being on the face of the earth has done, you've broken it. And you're like, oh, no. 
and you continue to break it. And that's the, that's the bondage. Um, and that's what Paul says, you know, um, the, the good that I desire, I do not do, and the evil that I don't want to do. I mean, you could fill it, fill it in with the Sermon on the Mount. I don't want to hate my brother, but I find myself hating him. Um, the evil that I don't want to do, that I end up doing. I don't want to lust after a member of the opposite sex. That evil which I don't want to do, I end up doing. Who will save me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So um, if, that was, if that was true for St. Paul, <laughs> um, probably we're going to have the same experience. Probably we're not going to out holy St. Paul. Okay, well, we're uh, five minutes past, so let's, let's break there. Um, we'll pick up around verse 16. Oh, not next week. Next week we have Vacation Bible School. So there'll be lots of little minions running around here. And I'd spare your ankles from getting bitten. Um, so in, in two weeks, we'll, uh, we'll pick back up on chapter 1, verse 16. By the way, did you notice in your, the epistle on Sunday, Paul referred to James as Jesus' brother? Yes, and yes, that's right. So now the question and the argument...